right, welcome everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good to see you guys. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Hey, you know, Mother's Day sometimes is a win for us, for some, and it's a, it's a loss for others. And so, you know, we got to take that into consideration every time this day comes along. And the one thing we can always say is that we all have our mothers, yes? Whether mothers who raised us or mother-like figures who raised us, that we can definitely honor and definitely love upon. So uh, spend this day honoring them. If you are like me, horrible son. No, I thank God for my wife who is very wise and very uh, discerning on how to uh, take care of my mom and my grandma, right? Otherwise, I would not do it, right? Or I would have a very hard time doing that. And so uh, thank the Lord for my mom. For my wife in that area. But if you are, if you're like me, if you have no idea how to buy gifts or like know what to, what to do, I, wrote, I did a word of the week in terms of how to honor your mother without having all the other stuff, right? but in a way that actually really will really bless them. So if you don't have a beautiful wife like me that does it for you, then, uh, you know, go do it yourself. Honor your wife. Word of the week, it's on uh, our, our, our website somewhere, all right? Hey guys, we are in the last of our series called Fishers of Men. Okay, we are fishers of people, right? And this series was designed um, to stir up your affection and desire for God's kingdom building plan. That's, that's really what it is. It's, it's, it's to stir up this, this, this sense that, you know what, God has a plan. If I am his son, his daughter, therefore I must also be part of this plan. Right? And this series sometimes, sometimes in our life we find ourselves stagnant, lost, stuck going in circles, not really actually living out the call that God has for us. And this series was designed to kind of stir up that affection, right? And it really began with the question is, do you actually have a relationship with God? Is your identity built on Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and your Savior? Because that has to be there first before we move on to anything else. Before we move on to try to fix the world, change the world, bless the world, you got to ask yourself, what is your motivating factor that's driving you? Is it the love of Jesus Christ? And, when, and then we moved into a, a conversation about if Christ is the one that is driving you, then are you actually transparent with the love that you have? Right? And the most transparent place that you can actually be is a place of relationship. Right, where you're offering yourself completely to this person in transparency. And if there's like a reflex in your heart that says, I don't really want to talk about marriage or marriage is kind of like a taboo for me, then you have to ask yourself, really, what's driving you? That if your heart's motivation and your reflex is not to give but rather to avoid. To we're called to restore our families. We're called to restore our workplace. We talk about motivation for work. We talk about the trajectories of work. What, why do you work? What's the purpose of work? Is it just simply to make money, right? Is it simply to make a name for yourself? Or is there a desire that you are there and you're asking yourself the question, I'm willing to invest in this job even though I might not get the full benefits or the, the higher pay that I want, but I'm willing to invest in it and stay with it and continue with it because it brings flourishing to the place where I'm at. Right? Sometimes we have to ask these questions because oftentimes we, we find ourselves always seeking for better, bigger and better. When sometimes God is just saying, I want you here. Can we discern those things? And last week we talked about your call to bring restoration to your church. Do 
you have people in your life? See, a church is not just about showing up and sitting in the Sunday pews, right? That's not what the church is about. That's part of the church, but it's not what it's about. Because a church, it's, it's a community of people that is seeking, consist, consistently wondering and considering, hey, how can I invest? How can I bless? How can I help the people next to me? See, if you're, if you're actually part of a church, the question you should be asking is, am I actually investing in the life of the people around me? Am I considering what's going on in their life? Have I asked them what's going on in their life? Have I, have I, have I sought to figure a way to help, to spur, right, to, to encourage them, to push them, to guide them, to um, battle with them, to come alongside them, to spur them? To encourage them and then to work them towards love and good deeds. Are we a church like that? Do we find ourselves investing in the lives of people? Do you find yourself being invested in it? And are you investing in people's lives? Because you can show up to church every single day for years and years and years and miss the whole point of church. Because it's about community doing this. Right? So today I want to end this message with this series with your call to the restoration of your city. Your call to the restoration of your city. The, the one thing I realized in the Christian faith as I was doing um, uh, more and more in the Christian faith lately is that as I was doing this Bible study for TGIF, one of the things that, that kept coming out in me was this passage that says, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Right? That's from uh, uh, Luke. Right? And so this picture was Jesus was saying, the gates of hell, gates are usually a defensive structure, okay? It's to hold back the aggressors here. And so what Jesus is saying is that the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, is it's on this defense. And the church, the people of God, is on the offense, moving forward, fighting the darkness, pushing back, expanding God's kingdom, making sure his name is known, his love is preached, and people are saved. It's, we're on the offensive, but what I notice so much in our communities and in the around of the church is that oftentimes the Christian life is more on the defensive. That you, you're just living your life waiting to just defend if someone has to ask you a question about your faith. Rather than to live a life that actually proclaims your faith wherever you step foot. Do you realize that? That as a believer, you are called... That wherever your foot is set, you bring good news. Do you know that? Do you know that wherever you go, you bring Eden with you? Because God's presence dwells in your heart. And so God's presence that dwells in your heart as you step forth into whatever situation, whether it's your family, whether it's your work, whether it's your city, whether it's your neighborhood, whenever you step foot in that place, your immediate surrounding, that place is Eden. And you are called to expand Eden into that area. But what we often see in the church among our brothers and sisters is this passive defense that we play over and over. But we're not called to that. It's not in the Bible to be that. We are called to bring restoration to our city. How? Two things today, okay? Only two points for Mother's Day. You're welcome, okay? One, you're called to be, to bring restoration to your city first by being a movement Second, by living out the pattern of the gospel in your life. So two things. How do I bring restoration to my city, TT? How do I be a believer that is on the offensive rather than constantly on the defensive? One, you 
do that by being a movement. I'll share with you that, what that means in a little bit. And two, you do that by living out the pattern of the gospel in your life. So let's open up the Bible. Acts chapter 8. This is the picture when the church became a movement. This is the picture at the very instant when the church that bore Jesus' name went from just a gathering to a movement. And I want you guys to really read this, really be with me in this one. Because in this, in this passage right here, it's our transformation of a group of people that gathers together towards a group of people that becomes a movement together. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Let me, let me, share, let me read this with you guys first. On that great day, persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. And so what we had before in chapter 7 was we had... This guy, Stephen, one of the deacons, the original deacons of the church, he was dragged out for preaching the gospel, and they stoned him. But before they stoned him, he gave this amazing speech, this, like, last 11-hour speech to the people. And after hearing it, they were just like, no, this guy must die. He's blaspheming. And they killed him. So the church was gathering together in Jerusalem. They were hanging out. They were talking. They were listening to preaching. They were learning. They were breaking bread together. They were sharing. They were giving. They were doing this in this community together. And then Stephen was martyred. And at that moment, the church went from a group of gathering to a movement. Let me show you what I mean by that. In this passage, what we see was we see this person named Saul who eventually will become Paul. Okay. And he was giving approval, the Bible says, to the stoning of Stephen. Okay? Here is this Christian in the middle of the, um, the, the plaza, and everyone's accusing him, and he was giving approval to kill this guy. Okay? He did not participate in the stoning. Okay? But he was there passively watching. And something at that moment triggered Paul, I mean Saul. It triggered him. It shook him. Something about Stephen, the way he spoke, the way he was at peace, the way he went to death, not crying for his life, or not even defiance, the way that he went to his death saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Something about Stephen's approach shook Saul. So much so that it radicalized Saul. So much so that it pissed Saul off so much that it terrified him to the point that he said, I am going to become an active destroyer of this community. I'm going to actively break down this community. And so you have a guy named Saul showing up to your home, opening the doors, dragging your, your, your wife, your kids out, killing, throwing in jail, persecuting this community. You guys see me? Right? The moment the church became a movement, it started... It started, it started with what? It started with persecution. Now what happened here, okay? Did the persecution stop what was happening? No, it actually exponentiated it. 
the persecution, the trouble, the tribulation, the hardship didn't stop the church. It actually made the church even more powerful because why? Everyone was scattered, okay? The effect of the persecution actually strengthened and helped spread the gospel. And I'll share with you what I mean by a movement in a second, but let me give you what happened here. Verse 4, it said, wherever they were scattered to, wherever they went, to Samaria, to Judea, wherever they went, they spread the gospel. The word here that they use, is, uh, the word preach doesn't mean what we think it is, right? When it says like um, everywhere, verse 4, those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. It doesn't mean like you're up here and you're like you know, talking like this. The word preach here is, what, is the word we get for the word evangelize. They were gossiping about the gospel, right? Have you ever gossiped about the gospel? Where you're like, kind of like, have you heard, have you heard about Jesus, right? right? Have, have, you, have you heard about what he did? Did you hear about this dude that like came back from the dead? Right? They were gossiping about Jesus. They were gossiping about the gospel. See, the, when, they, when the Bible says they were preaching, is what they were evangelizing. See, when they were at Jerusalem, what happened? They had great preaching. They sat together. The apostles were the disciples were there. And they brought their friends. Like, hey, friends, come on, check it out. Right? Listen to our, you know, our pastor, Peter, and them preach the gospel. But then persecution happened. Something came in. Shook them up. Scattered everybody. They were pushed out. And now we are told in verse 4 that whatever they had learned from their teacher and preacher, whatever they had learned, they began to do what? Gospel the go gossip the gospel. They shared the gospel. They began to counsel their friends with the gospel. They began to evangelize. Everybody did it. They took what they, did, they had and they did it themselves. Let me ask you this question. Whenever I preach to you guys, right, how often do you guys actually remember it? Oh, right, like, oh, man, I don't know what you preached last week, honestly, TT, right? How often do you guys actually gossip about it? Not about my preaching, but about the word that's been given to you, right? How often do you actually speak of this? You see, everything that was been taught, whether we have small groups, whether we have salt, everything that's been given to you, right, it wasn't meant just for you to have kind of this puffed up information and knowledge. It was always meant so that now in this moment, you go out into the world around you and you did what? You lived it out. The church, listen guys, is never meant to be a body of people with a small number of providers. When I'm talking about providers, you're thinking about like me, like the leaders, right? That we are the providers, everyone else just comes in. You guys are the customers. You listen, you hear, you enjoy, you move on. The church was never meant to be like that. The church has always been about what? It's that, that God used the persecution so that everybody is the provider. You guys hear that? Everybody say everybody. Right? Everybody, which means all of us, all of us are called to be providers. Everyone. Everybody say everyone. Everyone was evangelizing. Okay? Everyone was embodying the gospel, teaching the gospel, gossiping about the gospel. We've got it wrong sometimes, church. You know why we got it wrong? Because oftentimes you think that the church is really just about PT, Jason, our main leaders, our vision team, our servant team, that these guys are the ones who are doing most of, or most of our, uh, our ministry leaders, our small group leaders. These guys are the ones that does all of the providing. We're just here to kind of enjoy and then once in a while we'll bring somebody in. That's not what the church is about. We have leaders to impart, to teach, to share. But ultimately, you are called to take that teaching and to do what? 
to go out and be the providers yourself. You were called to evangelize. You were called to gossip the gospel. And all throughout the Bible, you see this. Let me ask you, is your relationship with God for real? See, the, the rhythm of the Bible tells us this, that when God calls you in, he sends you out right afterwards. That is the rhythm of Scripture. He calls you in, and then he sends you out. Abraham was called in. He says, you will be my people. Out of you, I will make a great nation. Now go. Leave your culture. Leave your family. Leave your place. Go to a place that's unknown to you. And I will use you to make a great nation. He was called in, and he was sent out. Moses, right? Moses, Moses. I'm the God of your father, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. Come or stop. He calls them in. And then what does he do with Moses? He sends them out. Now go to Pharaoh and tell them, let my people go. Never are you called in without ever being sent out. So if you find your life like this, brothers and sisters, Christians, if you find your life like this, that I'm constantly coming in, constantly receiving constantly gaining all these things, but I haven't done one lick of actually going out. My question to you is, are you listening to actually Jesus Christ? Whose voice are you actually listening to? What's driving you really? God never calls you radically in without sending you radically out. He never calls you in, blesses you, he blesses you only to make you what? Into a blessing. You're blessed to be blessed. Right? You are blessed to be blessed. So when God used the persecution to send out people so that everyone became a person in missions, right? Notice, notice, okay? That when everybody went out, it wasn't like Peter and, you know, James and John. They were like, okay, guys, this is the plan, okay? We're going to do 40 days of evangelism, Okay? So everybody go out there, you're going to go to Judea, you go to Samaria, you do all these things, and then we'll tell you what to do, and then afterwards, go preach the gospel. It wasn't like that. It wasn't a bureaucratic, head-down kind of movement. A true movement is this. You have received, right, and then what happens? You just go out, and you begin talking. It was ordinary believers taking their opportunity with their friends, their co-workers, their colleagues, people around them, ordinary people on the streets, in the bus stop, right, at the supermarket. And they just went out and they just talked about the gospel. They weren't trying to defend the gospel. They just shared it. They were just gossiping about it. Right? We have this mentality that every time we talk about Jesus, we have to defend Jesus. Says who? You think Jesus can't defend himself? Right? We have this mentality that somehow when I talk, I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm going to be offensive. So I always, in my offensiveness, I have to practice to be defensive. Do you find it offensive, husband, to talk about your wife? I hope not, right? I mean, if, you, if you're married, I hope you don't find it offensive to talk about your wife. Right? When you're in a crowd, right? And you're like, you know. You, you won't be like, oh, I, I don't want to talk about my wife. You know, just, no. So if that's the case, 
Why are we feel offensive? Offend, uh, uh, why do we feel like we're being offensive when we talk about Jesus? We're not called to defend Jesus. We're called to merely talk about, to gossip, to share what he's done. And that, that's what a movement is. See, we still have leaders in the church because the leaders keep the, the apostles. They, they, stayed, they stayed in Judea because, stayed in Jerusalem because they were there to make sure that the unifying message is still unified. Right? But overall, people just left. And as they went, as they scattered, as they ran away, as they went to their cities everywhere, they just naturally talked about the gospel. It wasn't a planned program. It wasn't an event that they had to put together. It wasn't something that they had to, like, you know, um, station and strategize and do all of these random things to get people motivated to share the gospel. It was something that was part of their life. They've been receiving it, and now they go out, and they've been changed and transformed by it. Now they go out, and they talk about it. Think about this, right? It's, a spon it's, it's something spontaneous that happens. Natural. That when you love something, you talk about it naturally. It comes forth easily. When you like something, you talk about it. Right? I always know, I, I shared this before, I always know when the new bobo shop comes out. Right? Because the moment the new bobo, I got like a thousand Instagram stories about the new bobo shop. I was like, wow, they really like this boba. They're evangelizing about it. They're gossiping about it. All right, I should go try the boba. Right? I always know about when the boba comes out or what restaurant is good, right? Why? Because we are willing to talk and gossip about that. And yet somehow, when it comes to Jesus Christ, there's this kind of like roadblock that comes up. You're not being defensive. You're just being an offensive person. You're just being, you're being on the offense to talk about who God is and what he's done in your life. And so the, the, I guess the harder question I have to ask you is, have you done anything in your life? I, I guess the harder question I have to ask is, have you been touched by God? I guess the harder question to ask is, is your identity actually in God? And if it's not, it's okay that you're here. And I hope that today you, you, you'll hear the beauty and the picture of why Jesus Christ is a, someone to be worshipped and, and worthy to be worshipped, worthy of your worship. But if he has touched your life, then what should naturally come forth from you is a conversation about him to others. It's spontaneous. Philip wasn't told to go to Samaria. He just went. Right? Just like we're not told to go to Ohio. We just show up there. Right? And when we go, we preach the gospel. Right? You're meant to just preach it wherever you go, you know? No one told you to do it, but you went. So if you're going to go, be a movement, right? Be a movement. Be spontaneous, sorry. See, check this out. God uses the persecution to turn his church into a movement where everyone is participating, where everyone is initiating, right? Yes, we do, we do events and programs here at TLC. Why? Not because we just like, oh, no. We're doing it in a way to get you guys to realize that you can do it yourself, right? Last year when we had the 40-day challenge, right? Spread love, not fear challenge. You guys remember that? It wasn't so that like, you know, oh, like 
this is our once a year program that we do. It could be, it could be an event that we do once a year, it's great. But it's meant to initiate something in your heart that says, hey, I can do this. Right? Where each day, we're, each week, we're trying to focus on doing something, and you realize, I can actually do this. And I can do this naturally. I can do this spontaneously. I can do this without being told or being directed or being forced to do it. I do it because I recognize that Jesus Christ is part of my life, and I want to just live it out there to the world around me. Whether I'm at work, whether I'm in my my, 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 in, my, in, in the city park when I hang out with my friends or when I'm at the movies or where I, wherever I go, I would share the message. How do you bring restoration to your city, guys? It's by being a movement. It's by being a movement, not by simply gathering in one spot. This is important. This community, this is how you grow in the image of Christ. This is where you meet the Lord deeper, better. And through this, you begin to be able to share who he is more full, more powerfully, more in depth. Of course. But the movement is that you actually do it. The movement is that you actually speak and gossip about the gospel. To preach the gospel is not standing up here and creating three points, a two-point message, and then sharing it, preaching about the gospel is just saying, you know, this is who Jesus Christ is in my life. This is what he's done. This is how he's changed me. This is what he's done for, my, for me. This is, what, this is who he is. And you're just sharing that, okay? That's the first point. Second point, how do we come? How do we bring restoration to our city? First, by being a movement. Secondly, by living out the pattern of the gospel. Look at the, what is the pattern here? Look at what uh, Philip does in verse 5. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. Okay? The first thing, it was the pattern. A couple things, okay? First thing about the patterns of gospel is what? Word ministry. Word ministry. He proclaimed the word. He went there and he talked about what? He talked about the Christ. He didn't say he talked about the church. He didn't say he talked about, like, you know, good feelings that come about. He spoke specifically of who? Jesus Christ. He wasn't defending it. He was just sharing it. Jesus Christ was the Lord and creator of all the world. He became a man for the sins of the world. He died on the cross, and then he came back to life. That's why I worship him. That's why I give my life to him. That's why I bow down to him and him alone. That's why I talk about him because he is so good. He is so good. Philip didn't just show up first to the town and do good deeds, although you do need good deeds. He showed up to that place and he did what? He talked about Jesus. He called people to repentance. He showed people the life-transforming message of the gospel. He went in there and he spoke about Jesus. When's the last time he spoke about Jesus, guys? When's the last time you proclaimed his name to your friends, to your colleagues? When's the last time in a casual conversation you bring him up over and over? When's the last time you spoke about Jesus in your life? Here's the second thing. Not only the patterns of the gospel is not only word ministry, but verse 7, it says what? With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. 
not only was there word ministry, but there was deed ministry. People were delivered spiritually and helped from their physical needs. There were physical help and there was spiritual help. Okay? And don't be distracted here because verse 6 it says what? When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. So what, 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 what happened here was he showed up, he did something. He, he showed up, he preached about Christ, he did something, and then that got their attention more. That, that made them listen even closer to what Philip was saying. Because not only do you have to talk about Jesus, and we have a lot of people like that in, in, in our workplace that maybe just talk about Jesus, but don't actually live Jesus out, live out the deeds, okay? They don't seek to feed the poor among them. They don't seek to do good for those around them. They don't seek to help those in need, right? They just talk and talk. They're puffed up with knowledge. They have all the right things. They will sit there and they will argue you for days. And they're very good at it. They're very eloquent at it. But their life does not show you the power and the, re and the reflection of what they're talking about. Because if Jesus changed my life, I should see something different about your life. And so what Philip did was he went there. He took care of the paralytics, those who are physically in need. But he also took care of them spiritually. Now here's what... I want you guys to get back at, uh, to understand. Can, a lot of you guys are thinking, well, PT, I can't cast out demons, man. Like, I, I can't remember the last time I did it. I can't remember the last time I saw someone do it, right? I, I can't do that. So I guess people are not going to listen to me. Don't be caught up about the miraculous sign of casting out demons. Do you know what the modern-day approach of casting out demons is? We believe in the spiritual realm of Christianity that there are spiritual forces that is directing, dictating, and speaking into the cultural narrative of our people, our nation, our towns, our cities, our people, right? For you to come in and to cast that out is not coming in and saying like, you know, in the power of Christ compels you and all of a sudden you hear shrieks and everyone, they run away. That's not how it works. The way you begin to come in and you begin to break the bondage, the stronghold of darkness in that area is that you come into that area you seek for prayer in that area, and you change the cultural narrative of that area. Let me say that again. You come into there, and you change the cultural narrative of that place. If the cultural narrative of your workplace, right, is all about, you know, like objectifying women. I remember one of my, uh, my, my, my mentors, he, he used to work at a place where a lot of the guys, they would objectify women because what they did during their break time, their lunch time, was to go down to the strip bar and have lunch at the strip club, right? They served food there, if you guys didn't know, right? They had lunch there, and at the same time, they would do that. And every day, every day, they would ask him, hey, bro, let's go. And he was like, um, I'm, I'm happily married. And so are we, right? Let's just go. And they're like, mm, but that, that really doesn't flow into what I stand for. And he goes, all right, I guess, right? But guess what? He didn't yield, and he spoke into that narrative. So they would have poker nights, right? They would have poker nights sometimes because he, he didn't avoid these guys. He didn't say, oh, you guys are strip club loving dudes, so I'm never going to hang out with you because, you know, evil people, right? You non-believers. He didn't do that. This is what he do. He lived among them. He hung out with them. So they had poker nights together, and, you know, every time they were like, you know, talk about objectifying women, he would say, you know who's hot? And he'd say, who? My wife. Right? And they were like, what? Come on, man. We're having a poker night here. It's a man's night. I was like, I know. My wife is hot. I mean, what am I going to say? Like, she's hot. Have you seen her? Right? Man. And they'll, they'll laugh. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. But eventually, after a while, a lot of, a lot of guys are like, yeah, man, I, feel like I'm, I feel like I'm being like a jerk to my wife. Like, you might be. Right? 
Did she know you're going to the strip club? No. Hmm, right? If she did know, what would she think? What would she think about it? Hmm. And what happens over time was you change the cultural narrative of that place. And you know what you just did there? You just delivered that place from a spiritual stronghold that was speaking to the life of a lot of the brothers. You guys follow? Right? That's what it looks like. As you go into a place, you teach about, you, you, you speak about Jesus Christ, but you live a life in such a way where it reflects what he has done in your life. Where it reflects his character, the integrity, the righteousness, the seeking to help, to bless, to love people. How do we restore our city? One, by being a movement. Two, living out the pattern of the gospel. The pattern of the gospel is word ministry, deed ministry. And here's the third one, right? It's racial reconciliation. Racial reconciliation. It's like, where is that from? Okay. Philip went down to Samaria. Okay. Philip went down to Samaria. Samaria to the Jews was like North Korea to South Korea, right? Samaria to the Jews is like communist Vietnam to your parents' Vietnam, right? Samaria to the Jews was a place that the Jews hated. They hated these people. They were half Jewish, half others, right? They were all mixed up. They did not like the Samaritans whatsoever. They thought these guys were half-breeds, not worthy, unholy, ungodly, did not want to be there. And yet what does Philip do? What does Philip do? He goes into those places. Think about this. We all grew up with a sense of bias in our life. Right? You, you did not grow up unbiased here, by the way. Right? If you grew up like me, right, you had a very racist grandma. Right? And you had some sort of biasness towards that. And you get kind of scared towards the racism that she has. Right? And, then, and that begins to kind of impart into you. But a believer does what? That in spite of all, a believer recognizes that you are not better than anybody. Jesus Christ had to die for everyone. Not for the ones he thought was great or better. He died for everyone because everyone was a sinner. And that means that when you look at another person, there is no possible way that you would think that that person is better than you. And that you would never think that you would be better than that person. See, the moment you think somehow that you are better... The moment you think somehow that you are more superior, smarter, wiser, richer, more educated, whatever, you have lost the picture of what the gospel is in your life. And vice versa, if you come into a situation and you feel constantly self, um, uh, self, self-conscious about yourself because you feel like you're not rich enough, smart enough, big enough, wise enough, whatever, let me tell you something. You've lost the picture of the gospel too because the gospel tells you that you are worthy to be saved. But the gospel also told you that you are, this is what it took to save you. This is how bad it was that it took the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, to save you. How do you live out the gospel in the city? Do you have the reflex of racial reconciliation? Do you have the reflex to go out to a place that you normally would not go and to invest in that place? To live there, to build relationships there, to know their children, to have their children call you uncle or aunt, 
to be that deeply embedded into that place? Is that part of our reflex, guys? Or do we avoid certain groups of people just simply because we don't want to associate with them? Right? And this goes across the board, too, not just by race. Gender issues, right? Would you not hang out with a transgender, homosexual person? And if they have children, would you not want their children to know who you are? To invest in their children's life? To be part of their life? Or are you because you grew up so Christian that you feel like I have to exclude myself from that type of environment? See, the reflex of a believer is to always reconcile. You guys follow me? The reflex of a believer is, is to seek for reconciliation. It is to seek to build relationship. My go-to thing is this, in my mind. is like if I'm going to start a relationship with somebody, I want their kids to call me Uncle Tony. That's, what, that's, that's my main thing. If their kids call me Uncle Tony, I've made it, right? The kids have not called me Uncle Tony, I'd be like, all right, I'll work a little harder, you know? It has to be that way. Is that part of your reflex as a believer? Do you avoid the homeless? Is your reflex when you see a homeless person, you're like, mm. is the first thing that comes to your brain all these questions about, like, I've seen, like, videos of these guys, you know, like, they're actually rich, they have, like, really nice cars, and they're just holding up these signs. It could be. I'm not going to lie. You're probably right. They're probably doing that. But they also could be just homeless. You don't know. What is your reflex? Is it to give? Is it to bring reconciliation? Is it to help? Or is it simply to avoid and exclude? You see, to bring restoration to your city, you got to teach it, you got to speak about Jesus. Your deeds need to reflect what you believe in. And you need to seek for reconciliation across the spectrum. Whether it's race, whether it's gender, whether it's ideology, right? How many of you guys don't hang out with Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians or the Green Party or the, or the Nazi Party? Well, well, well no, that's not too far, too far, too far, too far, too far, right? right? How many of you guys keep distances like that, that I don't want to actually even have friendships because you know what? The ideology is so different. Instead of seeking about reconciliation between that. But here's the thing. Check this out. I will end today with this. But even greater than all these steps, even greater than all these steps of the gospel movement, even greater than all these steps in living out the pattern of the gospel is this right here. Is that these patterns, these steps, this movement, you know what it mirrors? It mirrors the gospel. You realize that? Man, as I was reading this, I realized how much it mirrors the gospel. Verse 1 and 3, what do we have? We have death, right? Verse 1 and 3, we have someone dying, there's mourning, there's, there's persecution, there's sadness. And then verse 8, what do we have? We have joy. We have peace. We have great joy in that city. The movement of life, listen, does not occur outside the realm of suffering. Let me say that one more time. Let me say that one more time. I, I'm pretty sure everyone who's just so afraid of suffering, let me give you one more time. The movement of life, life-giving movement never happens without suffering first. 
that Jesus Christ himself came to suffer and die, and his, the result of that suffering was what? Reconciliation. Joy to the world. Because now you have a place at the Father's table. Paul tried to scatter the people, but it led to what? It led to them gathering even more. Paul sought to break up the movement. Paul sought to destroy these people, and then it actually brought even greater power. Stephen died in chapter 7. He died in front of a bogus court. And he was able to endure it. He was able to endure. Can you imagine? You're being tried, and it's not even a real courtroom that you're being tried in. Okay? Someone's bringing a, 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 a claim against you, and it's not even a legit place in which they're bringing this claim, but they're about to kill you. Stephen was tried in front of a bogus court. He was able to endure it, and it said he died with what? Radiance on his face. His death scattered the people and brought new life and new joy wherever it went. Now, how was he able to do? How was he able to endure stoning? I'm not sure if you've ever been hit by a stone. It hurts. And I'm not sure if you realize how big these stones that they were. They weren't these pebble stones that my son did. They're like, like chunks of stone, right? And thrown full force until you die. Until you die, right? But how was he able to endure it? How? By looking at the one who endured its face. He endured the suffering that came to him. Because he looked and he realized at the one who endured its face. Stephen brought life to a city, but he only mirrored the death of Christ who brought life to the world. You follow? Stephen brought life to the city, but that suffering and that life that he brought through his suffering was only a mirror of the suffering and death of Christ that brought life to the world around him. We're so afraid of a little bit of suffering. We're so afraid of being behind. I need to catch up to all my friends because they all seem advanced. They all seem better than me. They all seem ahead of me. I'm still single and living with my mom. I feel like I'm a useless, hopeless, worthless person. And we're so afraid of suffering. We're so afraid of enduring. We're so afraid of going through these, 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 these issues, these persecutions. We're so afraid of speaking for Jesus because we think that by speaking for him somehow we're going to like mess everything up. We're so afraid to actually feel suffering. We're so afraid of being canceled by the whole crowd. That we would stay silent. And yet what we see is what? Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, the Bible says, he endured the cross. Death brings the resurrection. My prayer is this, guys. That our church is not simply a church that's just going to gather together. I love it. You know what? I could die happy, honestly, tomorrow. If I say, Lord, I did my best. It's a good community. Right? 
But my prayer, my prayer for us is that we don't just become a group of people that just is happy and satisfied and comfortable of just being together. But that you would be a, a people that spontaneously, organically, wherever you go, your classrooms, your workplace, the hospital, your law firm, your business, that wherever you go, you begin the movement of just gossiping about Jesus. Because only he gives life. And, and let me tell you, let me tell you, it probably won't be easy, right? And you, and you probably will get a lot of pushback. And you're probably going to face a couple bit of suffering and a little bit of nudging here and there. But what you face is just a mirror of the gospel, is it not? That first comes pain, then comes joy. Right? And that's my prayer. That you don't let momentary moments of pain scare you from seeing the resurrection of what God can do through you. Don't let circumstances and difficulties stop you from doing something that is right, that is good, that is life-giving. Because whatever God can do through you, he will do it. I promise, if you would have the courage to step into it, to be consistent with it, and to not give up on it, to endure. And the only way you can do that? Jesus Christ. You look to the one who endured it for you, but you endure it for the world around you. Let's pray.